Welcome to a new episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast. In, I think it was one of our recent episodes, probably two or three episodes ago, we were joined by Chris Coyer to talk about CSS. And because we haven't really covered CSS that often, and it's a great topic to cover, we are diving in again, this time with special guests Estelle and Eric. Estelle and Eric, can you give us a brief introduction of who you are, what you do, and what your favorite happy hour beverage is? Estelle, I think you should go first because you already have your beverage. I do have a beverage. Uh, My name is Estelle Weil. I am a technical writer. I work on the documentation that is hosted at MDN, which is Mozilla, I mean, developer.mozilla.org. But I work for an open source collective called Open Web Docs. So it's openwebdocs.org. And uh, we're funded by browsers and individuals to write full time um, and write documentation on everything web-related that's open source. So I usually do the CSS, HTML, and things like progressive web apps and accessibility and performance. And my favorite beverage, I like passion fruit martinis and lychee martinis. Eric. Um, yeah, hi. Uh, my name's Eric Meyer. Um, kind of a, a long-time gadfly of the web. Been doing this web thing since 1993. Um written some stuff about CSS. Estelle and I co-authored a book, uh, CSS, The Definitive Guide, 5th edition. Um, I'm currently a developer advocate for Egalia, which is a open source consultancy based in uh, Spain and is responsible for things like CSS Grid implementation in two major browsers and a bunch of other things like that. Uh, my favorite happy hour drink, uh, I would have to say, is a water on the rocks. I'm very square. Right on. Let's also give introductions of today's panelists. Uh, Cole, you want to start it off? Hey, everyone. My name is Cole. I'm a software engineer at Netflix. Stacy London. I'm a principal front-end engineer at Atlassian. Hello. I'm Augustus. I'm a software engineer at Twitch. And I'm Ryan Burgess. I'm a engineering manager at Netflix. In each episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast, we like to choose a keyword that if it's mentioned at all in the episode, we will all take a drink. And what did we decide today's keyword is? Daytight. Daytight. Well, let's dive into the episode. I'm curious for everyone's thoughts. We've seen a lot change in CSS probably in the last year, half a year or something like that. It's been great to see so many changes. What's everyone been excited about? So many things. I think for me, it's, uh, I'm going to give it, I'm going to assign a tie. Subgrid in Chrome or Chromium as the case may be. And then the has selector in uh, various engines. I think for the general population, it's been grid and flexbox. But I would have to say has, not, is, where, and cascade layers. Ooh, these are all really good ones. I feel like we should expand on all of them. Where to start? Uh, let's start with some of the selectors like has. Estelle, what is what is has? So how does that even work? So Eric is actually a better person to talk about this because I believe, I'll tell you, um, Egalia, where he works, they did the first... They didn't implement it in the first browser, but they did the. They basically came up with the prototype so that it would actually work. Because the reason that we never had has or the parent selector was because of the slowness that the selector would have. So you could, you know, jQuery had has. I'm so glad we're not drinking with the word has. And you could do that because JavaScript is slow bytes in and of itself. You're adding a framework, you know, that's okay. Because you know you know you're slowing down the browser, but browser vendors cannot put something slow into the browser. 
So every time you have something that's actually released, it's going to be performant. And that's also as a non sequitur, possibly a sequitur, why I always recommend to never use CSS prefixes is because all of those prefixes that we used to use meant that it wasn't necessarily performant. So if you use a prefix, if you forgot to remove a prefix from an old code base, if you put you know, WebKit border radius in something, the only browser that needs WebKit border radius is Android you know, in the two versions, which are still used in some countries. And that is going to slow down their browser. So there's no reason to serve prefix properties because they're ridiculously slow. So going back to has, the reason has was never put into the browser originally is because there was no way of saying, okay, uh, this is a parent selector. And as your DOM changes, how do we quickly or instantly update this? And so I'll let Eric explain how that's done. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the things that I think most of us don't appreciate is that browser vendors uh, have to render web pages at 60 frames a second or better for the most part. Because if you're going to scroll, you don't want it to be janky, right? Well, janky is low frame rates. That's what it is. So the same kinds of frame rates that you would expect out of Fortnite or you know whatever first-person shooter is popular with the kids these days, I don't even know anymore. Um, the same kinds of constraints apply. And so what has is, has is a way to say, this element has some other element in relationship to it. And we're going to select the element that has the has. <laughs> so you, if you say something like a href has, and then in the parentheses, you put IMG, you're saying this, any hyperlink that has an image as a descendant. Or you could throw in a little child combinator, a little you know angle bracket, so that it's any hyperlink that has an image as a child. You select the hyperlink, not the image, which is not the way CSS has ever worked before has, basically. Um, and that, like Estelle was saying, the, the barrier was always browser vendors saying, sure, we know how to look up a DOM chain, right? We know how to look from one element up to another, but being able to do that in a performant way, like when the DOM might be recalculated because of scripting or because of somebody's hover or whatever, like we don't, we don't really know how to do that performantly. And um, then uh, one of Agalia's clients, um, IO, the people who do Adblock Plus, they basically contracted with Agalia to say, can you do a prototype implementation just to see if it can be made performant? Um, and then, yeah, then things got uh, moved very quickly once basically it was shown that, yes, this can be done performantly. Um, and it involves a whole lot of tricks that we, I, I only sort of understand myself. It basically has to do with, it turns out that browsers cache, they have a lot of caches, right? There's a style cache, there's a DOM cache, there's a layout cache, like all this stuff is cached to make everything really fast. And uh, Byung-Woo Lee at, um, at Agaliev um, basically figured out a way to like put little cache flags on things to make it much faster to say, okay, well, rather than having to like go up and traverse the entire sub-DOM of some ancestor element, you can very quickly see, oh, these two are related or, oh, they're not related. Um, and that's the other thing about has is that it's not, specifically a parent selector. 
This is what people have asked for for a long time. It's really an, it's, it's an ancestor selector, but it's not even an ancestor selector. It's a relational selector. You can literally set it up so you say, I want to select a div that has an ordered list inside of it. But then you keep going with your selector to say, okay, if there's a div that has an ordered list inside of it, that, and it has a table that comes immediately after it, I want to style that table. So that you only style the table if it immediately comes after a div where the div has an ordered list inside it. Like you need some really wacky stuff. Um, so uh, yeah, it's, it's incredibly powerful. Uh, and we're only just beginning to figure out the barest beginnings of what might be possible with it. Just a few things to note about that selector. It used to it used to accept a forgiving list, and that has been changed to a non-forgiving list. So if there's something invalid, if there's an invalid selector, because um, it does take a query, um, it does take a complex, uh, a, a complex compound selector list. So you can have comma-separated uh, selectors that are very complex in there, but they all have to be valid. So you can't uh, put you know, a pseudo class that doesn't exist. And you also can't put a pseudo element. The spec says that there will be some has accepting pseudo elements, but none have been defined. So none of them are valid. Interesting. That's good to know. I did not know that part of it. So thank Eric you. and I know tons of useless trivia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we really do. Yeah. So the, the, I think where most people will probably first use has is in context where they used to have some JavaScript that would, uh, add a class somewhere in the DOM tree that effectively meant there's a thing inside of this element, but I want to style the element that contains the thing. So like you'll, you know, in frameworks, you, you add a class that says, you know, has nav or something like that, because there's a navigation element inside of there and you can replace those sorts of things instead of having to do that server side calculation and like stuff classes in your, in your HTML, just so that you can style some sort of ancestor, you can just do it with a CSS selector now, and it will be much faster. So I think that Eric gave you the simplest example of what people are going to be using it for, but you can use it for really complex things. And I think what people will want to use it for is like, let's say there's an error in a form on the page, but you don't want to style the form, you want to style some other component on the page. So you can do like body has form with an error class active then you do some that's the end of the has part and then you just do within that body so it's selected this body because that matches the body does it have this other element and style that other element or does that other element also have something then you can style this third thing and it's just one selector that gets super long and the specificity could get pretty high you think but that's where you use the where or is, I can't remember which one has non-specific. Where is the one that has no specificity? So that. you just take everything in a where, and it does two things. It removes all the specificity, so you're not making it hugely specific. And also, if there's an error in it, like you put a class, um, you're targeting like some Mozilla feature or WebKit feature, um, such, you know, um, then it's like, cool, I got, I'm not going to fail on that. Very cool. Eric, I think you had also mentioned another one that's really cool that you're excited about is uh, Cascade Layers. Uh, I'd love to hear more on that one. Well, the point Estelle was just making actually leads right into this, right? We're, um, Which is perfect. Yeah, exactly. Where if you're 
like doing selector tricks to try to lower specificity or raise specificity or just get your specificity into some sort of band. Cascade layers will do that. The, you're able to set up your own sort of layers. The way that I present it to people is that we've always had two cascade layers. The important rules are in one layer and everything else is in the default layer, quote unquote. And then, I mean, you can get into the whole, which way the layers, the important and the um, default layers go with respect to, is it an author style or is it a user style? And is it a user agent style? And like, it gets more complicated, um, but with cascade layers, you can define more layers. You could literally have, uh, besides the default layer, you could have a layer that contains all of the rules for your design system. And another one that has all of the rules for the ad network that you have been told that you have to put on the site or whatever. And you can define what order those layers go in. So all of the rules in one layer, uh, no matter what their specificity is, they will overrule any rule that's in a lower cascade layer, regardless of its specificity. Unless it's important and the Unless it's important, then the order's right, exactly. reversed. So, right. Stop. Like we've always said, don't do important. Even more, don't do important. If you're using cascade layers, you should never, ever use important. I'm just drawing that line in the sand. I don't, I got nothing. I'm happy to hear you say that, Eric. I mean, I feel like we've all heard never use important. And anytime I've ever opened up some old legacy CSS that someone has it, it drives me nuts. So still, we shouldn't be using as important. Is that the takeaway here? I'd like to give an example of when I use cascade layers. I don't know if you all use CodePen, which Chris Coyer, um, who you had on two weeks yep. ago, was uh, runs. So in a code pen, you can have your CSS, like there's three panels, there's HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And then in the CSS, basically, I'm always teaching people something. So I want them to see the point of what I'm teaching them. So I want that to be first. But I don't want to like have to worry about the foundations of the page that I'm showing them. So I put all of that in a cascade layer. So that I put in the cascade layer, I say, uh, you know, f the, basically, I call it um, at cascade and I name the layer framework and then uh, I put everything that I want in the page outside of a cascade uh, outside of a layer and then everything that makes the page look the way it does that isn't important to the tutorial I'm teaching is in a layer and so whatever I'm teaching overrides even though I'm only using an a element so the specificity is zero zero one and I'm overriding you know, the pound sign, my page, A, that Bootstrap put in. So you can actually take Bootstrap, put in a cascade layer, and it override everything you want, um, which is unfortunate because that's how I used to get paid. All my big bucks was removing frameworks from... I mean, it is nice now it's a little bit easier, Estelle. So you could still get paid to do it. It just might make it a little bit easier. Or I could tell it. them that it takes me a month and all I have to do is stick it in the cascade layer. Ooh, Ooh that's, <laughs> this is fair. Yeah, see, like this is, you know, you're just optimizing your time. I like it. Lawful evil, very nice. Estelle, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you'd also mentioned Grid and Flexbox. Uh, those are great ones that have, they've been around for a while and definitely made our lives a bit easier, but let's let's dive in there. What do you like about Grid and Flexbox? Like to me, they're kind of boring because they've been around and everyone teaches it. So I don't focus on it at all. And I don't even know the names of the properties. Like, I mean, I do, but I don't, 
Like, it's not something I teach. I teach it in 15 minutes yeah. because I'm like, there's 16 videos on this. You don't want to take my time to teach you this because you can learn this really quickly. But it's, you know, uh, when we were writing CSS, the definitive guide, version five, in version four, there was a huge chapter on positioning. And now the chapter is tiny because you don't need to teach floats anymore. So you still do need to teach floats because floating is still useful and important. You can still float it's stuff. So it's yeah. got to be in there. <laughs> it's not the basis for building websites. Asking as someone who hasn't floated anything in a long time, I, I just recently returned to UI development. What are some of the use cases you're seeing for floats in 2023? You want to float your, your figure. Like you have text, you still want to float the figure within the text. Um, and you still need to know how to break afterwards or not break afterwards. Uh, if you ever write uh, a Word doc and you stick an image in it, do you want the text to go behind it, in front of it? You know, that's the same thing that you have to do. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's mostly what it is. Like on my website, on my blog, MeyerWeb.com, when I have figures, they're floated, most usually unless they're super huge and I want them to be full column width, whatever. But yeah, like little figures are floated to the side and the text flows around them. That's the only thing I use float for anymore. It's a little weird sometimes to realize, oh yeah, I used to float everything. And now I barely float anything. But when I float things, there are things that should be floated. <laughs> they're not <laughs> layout structure. So the layout structure floats were always a pain in the ass. Like honestly, yeah. but it was all—it was really all we had. Like, totally, because we, because we had clear. Yeah, it's kind of crazy because yeah, back in the day, like you know, especially as responsive design started becoming more popular, like floats felt like the most tangible way of achieving those kind of layout, addressing all of those layout issues. And then Flexbox came out, and that was dude, that was just such a huge game changer. Especially for me, I was like, oh my God, this is like incredible. The original version of the Flexbox chapter was its own little book. And I spent six weeks trying to explain how Flexbox worked because we didn't have logical properties. So now that we have logical properties, really easy to explain and, I, and people can understand it. But before that... It was uh, nearly impossible. Eric, do you want to explain logical properties? Uh, yeah. I mean, logical properties are things like margin block and margin inline. So we, for 25 years, <laughs> for a generation, literally, we had margin top, margin left, margin right, margin bottom, that sort of things. They were physical directions, but that doesn't play very well with different writing systems, right? As long as you're writing, you know, left to right, top to bottom, top to bottom, left to right, whatever, uh, those can make sense. But, you know, margin left and margin right are padding left and padding right. You already start to run into trouble if you're now need to publish in Arabic or Hebrew, which are right to left. And then if you want to have your designs adapt to, let's say, uh, Japanese, where oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes the writing is, prime. you know, like the inline direction is top to bottom. And then the text, the block direction runs right to left. Um, so instead of having these physical properties like, you know, padding left, margin top, et cetera, now we have things like margin block start and padding inline end, right? To, to be able to say, I want this padding to be at the ends of lines, whichever like side of the screen that's on, whether it's the, you know, quote unquote, top or bottom or the left or the right, doesn't matter. 
this is what I want over here. Um, and there is not as yet a way to use the shorthand margin or padding or border properties in a logical way. That's been considered by the CSS working group. Um, I'm not sure where that discussion stands because there are so many discussions. It's almost impossible to keep track of them all unless literally you're paid by somebody to do that. Like there are- As a full-time job. A few people. As a full-time job, not just paid, you know, a few hours, but full-time job. Right. Yeah. There are a few people out there that like Google, Apple, Microsoft, Open Web Docs <laughs> pays who, you know, like a huge component of their job is just to know what's going on with all of the specs. So yeah, so logical properties, I've actually, I've shifted my, the way that I write things like margins and padding. And I'm not the only one. I know uh, like Jeremy Keith has talked about this, uh, Chris Coyer, um, uh, some other people, Estelle probably. Um, I also assume Miriam Susan and Rachel Andrew as well. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Miriam, uh, yeah, Miriam, absolutely. But where uh, I almost never use the physical directions anymore. So um, when we first wrote Flexbox, those logical properties didn't exist. But Flexbox was kind of the first property that when you change the language to Arabic or to Hebrew, it went into a right to left writing mode. So it would flip it for you. So explaining that was really difficult. And now it's, it's not it's it's less of a less of a challenge right because flexbox originally had like justify contents center which everyone was like oh my god we can center things now but there was also originally justify content flex end or flex start those are just now end and start but that was where that first sort of got into css was that sort of logical direction for everything um and now there are properties um yeah, like Estelle said, where margin block or, you know, border inline start. So the interesting thing about the book we wrote is there's tons and tons of graphics in the book, which are just screenshots. And none of it, or all of it rather, is actually code that works because neither Eric nor I have any Photoshop skills whatsoever. Hey, <laughs> some Photoshop skills. I know how to hit quit. Yeah. <laughs> The shortcut key, Estelle, or is it you're just closing it? <laughs> Turn the computer off. So Photoshop is your VI. I got it. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I vaguely recall reading that y'all used the screenshot, some screenshot tool in Firefox for all your examples in your book or something like that. Uh, yes. Uh, like 99% of the figures are literally high DPR screenshots taken directly from the console in Firefox. Firefox has, well, it had a console command called screenshot. I think it was called originally. And uh, then they dropped it and I complained. I was like, this is what I use. <laughs> like I need this. <laughs> and so it came back actually. It was really <laughs> nice. nice. Um, but now it's colon screenshot. I don't know why it has to start with a colon, but it does. And I just, I, I roll with it. But yeah, there's, when you're on the console, you can do colon screenshot, like dash dash full page if you want, literally the entire page. If you leave that off, it just takes a picture of the window. You can also do dash dash selector, give it a CSS selector, and it will take a picture of the first match to that selector. Um, and then you can set a DPR. So 
because it because I'm capturing for print, I'll do like four uh, X DPO. No one, you all, whoever's listening, can't see us, but we all just looked at Eric like, "Oh my god, I didn't know that this could do this." So yeah, Eric has more more console skills than we have VI skills. I uh, I even wrote a blog post or two about this and like did some documentation of it. So. Uh, if you if you search for Firefox screenshot MeyerWeb.com, you'll probably find it pretty. It'll probably come up pretty high in the results there, and it just talks about, you know. And that was I think I wrote that around the time of the fourth edition, but that's it did the same thing for the fifth edition here. There are several hundred figures, and I think fewer than half a dozen were done some other way. But I love that. Like it, it's so. It's like demos that you're like, hey, we, this is what it looks like. And this is exactly what you should be seeing. There's actually a, a repo for all of those. So. Yeah, we took all the all the, all those files. All the files that were used for these are in a GitHub repository. It's also up on GitHub pages as a live site um, that you can just click through and like each chapter page just lists all of the figures. And if a figure title is a link, you can click on it and it'll load up. And that's the thing that I took a screenshot of basically. And then only in a very few cases, like I say, is it either not linked for some reason or, um, you know, there, there might, there, there are some that are more interactive than we could show in a book. Very cool. I love the like insights to this too. Like just going deep into that. That's very cool. Um, yeah. Now we also know how to take screenshots in Firefox with there you go. DPI. Yeah. It's yeah, awesome. And I mean, part of the reason that I did that, uh, like have been doing that for a while and that we continue to do it, um, in these editions is that, uh, building the figures, out of the stuff that's being written about, sometimes I would discover, oh, I just wrote two pages that were wrong <laughs> because I misunderstood how this one property value works. And once I figured out how it worked, I was like, oh, I'm going to have to go back and rewrite that part because that's not how that actually goes. Um, you can you can have that happen, but it was it was a good sanity check, you know, to say, okay, this thing I just wrote about, I'm going to like I put in code samples. Now I need to prove that they actually work. And if they work, I can take a screenshot. Yay. So it made it, uh, it was, it was a, it was a good way to, to sort of fact check as the thing was written. And then also we could just take everything, throw it up on GitHub and people can see it live. So, which is particularly nice if you are a, a print connoisseur as I am, I still, we haven't been able to convince O'Reilly to print this book in color. And so sometimes it's, it is almost 1200 pages. So that would yeah, be really, really a, expensive. Yeah. Well, you know, I'd buy it. I still think they should do it. But in the meantime, if you're like reading about color and there's an example that refers to a bunch of different hue angles or whatever, and then there's a figure and you're like, it's all gray. It's like, go see it on the web. And then, and if you're reading it electronically, they're all, or at least many of them are linked to the actual life files i mean you heard it too stacy's willing to pay for pay extra for the color version what you need to do is convince them that yeah fine do the black and white one but we will also have the premium color version i mm, like this yeah the deluxe the platinum yes mm. yes so if you actually take the book and you put two together it's the same height as a stair so you have to buy two copies <laughs> that's wild <laughs> you have to buy two copies so that you can put ladders on your staircase 
<laughs> All right. Estelle, how do you know this? Okay. So we moved to San Francisco two years ago, two and a half years ago, and I removed this light bulb from the top of the staircase and put it in the bathroom. And I could never get back to where that light bulb was to replace it because it was above the staircase. And when I got the book, I put four of them down. So like two steps were on this one step and then two others were on the next step. And then I was able to put my little step ladder and change the light bulb. That's so precarious. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're still with us. <laughs> so the reason that the sound is so loud whenever a fire truck goes by is because we removed the window right next to me and then the window broke. Um, so there's just basically plywood. So you can hear all the sound and you can also hear my dog crying for food. Um, he's only been fed 10 times today, so he really needs to shut up soon. Uh, so when I going to put the window in from outside, I am going to put uh, eight books. I need eight books because I, actually have to go over two stairs rather than just one step oh man so at least you're close to a hospital here <laughs> you know what that means you can no longer change the contents of the books or like css cannot grow any further no more new data types uh, uh cheers. Cheers. Oh, cheers because we need those books to be the stairs that guide us through CSS. So I wrote a book many years ago called H uh, Mobile HTML5. And it's about how to write mobile websites. It's basically how to create a progressive web app, but using SQL, WebSQL, and App Cache, which we all know is a douche. Yes. So I have tons of those books, and I can't give them away because I don't want anyone to use the content. And you put six together, and it's the same as step. <laughs> oh, man. Estelle just needs her own episode of a podcast where it's like, how to make steps with Estelle. <laughs> All right. So we've covered some pretty interesting additions to CSS. I'm curious, what are some things that are still missing for both of you? Like there's definitely things that are still out there that would make our lives easier. And I would love to hear your thoughts on that. I would actually love to hear from the other people in the room, what they feel is missing from CSS. Like what is it that they keep running into? And then maybe we can tell you that it already exists or, <laughs> or we can say, Oh yeah, that that's still missing. I mean, on the episode with Chris, I like, I mentioned like, you know, a really easily stylable select, component. And he's like, it already exists. And I'm like, yes, but it's not available in all the browsers yet. So I'm eagerly awaiting for it to, to be more like mainstream. But that one has been huge because it's just the, num the amount of JavaScript that's been written over the years to achieve that has, is, is monstrous, like monstrous amounts of JavaScript. Can I add something to that? So the issue with data list, I don't know if you know what a data list is. You can basically create an input and make it drop down like a select. That is styled in the browser and there's no way to overwrite that styling. So be very careful when you use a data list because it's actually not fully accessible because you can grow the font for the whole, you can zoom in, but, it, but that font will stay the same. Which brings us to shadow DOMs. All right, let's hear it, Estelle. What's what's shadow DOM? Oh, so when you create a custom element, basically all the style you put um, when you create a custom element, the ele the element is just like my super button. Um, it has to have a dash in the name of the custom element. 
if it doesn't have a dash in the name of the custom element, when you use the define pseudo class, the uh, selector for that element will automatically be defined. So if you do like my button with no dash, it'll say it's defined even though you haven't defined it yet. If you do my dash button, then it will wait till you actually um, register the custom element for it to be defined. So it'll, so that's really important for that pseudo class. So anyway, once you create a pseudo element, um, I did a tutorial for web.dev uh, learn HTML. There's a thing on templates and slots. And I created a, a custom element that is actually a five-star rating thing. Um, so it uses basically no JavaScript for it to work itself. So you can rate something one to five and that works without any JavaScript, but you still have to register the element so that you have a um, custom element called star dash rating. So when I create this element called star dash rating, um, all I have to do is put star rating into my HTML. It's defined and it will have all the components inside that create that, which is five input elements that are made to look like stars. And when you select like the fourth one, then all the f one through four turn orange and the fifth one turns white. When you're hovering over them, they're all gray or white. So it completely works without any JavaScript, uh, but doesn't do anything. Uh, but when you register it, it becomes defined. And then all of those buttons, those inputs are in a shadow DOM. So there's basically a barrier, kind of like there's the brain body barrier where you're like, if you do something like, you know, how like if you have an illness in your body, it doesn't go to the brain because there's that barrier. There's kind of the barrier between the, the, regular, the light DOM and the shadow DOM. You can pass through it with certain selectors. There's the part uh, pseudo element. There's the slotted pseudo class, I think, or pseudo element. And then there's the host and host context. So from inside the shadow DOM, so just stepping back. So if I style a, a radio button inside my custom element, that radio button is only styled there. I don't have to worry about the specificity because it won't go through to the page and no styling of the inputs, the radio buttons from the page will go into my shadow DOM or my custom element. So the custom element, I can say, you know, I called it star dash rating. I can say, you know, start dash rating, uh, uh, rating, and I can float it to the right or to the left. So here we are floating. You see, you need to float that start star rating. <laughs> you know, I can, my regular CSS will hit that element, but it won't hit anything inside it. So if I do my rating and I do um, input type radio, it's not going to reach anything. But if, uh, so you can go through that that body uh, brain barrier, which is the light DOM or the regular DOM into the shadow DOM with certain pseudo classes. So there's uh, the slot element. So you have a template element and inside that you have a slot and you can write whatever HTML. So from the outside, you can style the slot. Um, and from inside, you can say, hey, the host, it's a pseudo class, uh, the host, um, you can style like and say float it to the right. So when someone puts a star rating, you can say always float the star rating to the right. Um, I don't actually know if the specificity from inside the element, I think that will have lower specificity. I think that will be like a user agent in terms of the user will always uh, 
the author will always override. But I would have to double check that because I can only geek out to a certain level. I mean, I think you did a great, great job explaining it, Estelle. Like, it's not an easy one to necessarily explain. And so I think you've done a very good job of it. Without any diagrams. Okay, where did I get wrong? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> so uh, what else is missing? Yeah, one that I, it isn't missing anymore, but one that I was very, very excited about was even just simply having nesting in CSS. That was one that like having SAS, less, all that, just being able to do that. Once you start writing that way, it's like, it's really hard to go back and just write CSS. So that was one thing that I've been very happy about. It's, to me, it's pretty simple, but you know, it has brought me a lot more joy if I'm having to write CSS. So it's not necessarily wanting something new, but that is something that I'm excited about. Well, that's pretty new. CSS it is, yes. Real new. Yes. <laughs> so, and not, it's not 100% browser. It's, yet, it's not. But. I think it's still missing from, I can't remember. I think it was one or two browsers are still not supported it. So it's not like you can really use it, but. But it's still, coming. Yes. So interrupt 2023. Basically, all the browsers have decided, I think that's part of Interop 2023, is it not? Uh, I, hmm, I think it may not have made the cut because at the time that the Interop 2023 list had to be determined, it was still in flux, like what the syntax was going to be. And But uh, not 100% on that because Interop 2023 is like 26 topic areas. So that could have ended up being one of them. But if it's not in 2023, I would... Imagine that it probably will make 2020. One issue with nesting that I definitely saw a lot with with SAS and less is specificity. So people would yes. just basically nest and nest and nest, and then nothing worked, and they didn't know how to write CSS selectors, so they just put a pound sign, my page, in front of it, and then nothing could override from any other, um, you know, that's where cascade layers comes in. But don't force yourself to need cascade layers by... Um, nesting things 27 deep. But now at least if you nest 27 deep, you can just stick it in a cascade layer and say, forget about it. I mean, there was always that unwritten rule, I think, even in Lesson SAS to only go three and that was it. Like stop there. You shouldn't have to go any further. I'm, I've am i definitely seen people go very far, uh, way too deep on it. But um, I think for the most part, you shouldn't need to. I've worked with too many people that did not get the memo. <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't really. It was like that unwritten memo that people definitely didn't. Oh, read. I read. I wrote the memo yeah, many times. Every time I took a job, I'm like, "Here's my memo." <laughs> okay, who else? I feel like for me, uh, I'm going to be totally wrong about this, but that plus Tailwind CSS makes me believe that there is some need to transpose or copy styles multiple bulk of them and not use selectors and not use specificity. And I know that sounds gross and that goes against everything about CSS. But when I look at what Tailwind is doing or what um, even I see with a lot of CSS variables, uh, there have been many times where I just make the specificity worse because I want to copy these bulk styles. And then when you do that, you have to unset or reset. And so I just don't know. I don't know what's right anymore. Data type. Yep. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> so to me, Tailwind, nothing personal, and I'm going to piss off um, half of the React developers oh, in the world. The minute it comes up, Estelle, the minute the word Tailwind comes up, you're pissing somebody off. So I mean, to me, Tailwind is when you fart. Um, 
<laughs> I love puns. It's not a pun. It's literally in Shakespeare. They're like tailwind. And that's what they're t- referring to. When I'm offered an opportunity to speak at a conference and they say, you know, like, come speak at a conference and therefore I don't have to go through the selection process. I always speak about selectors because UI engineers don't understand is CSS selector specificity in the cascade and inheritance. And you can select any element. I basically, when I worked at Visa, I rewrote their application that was five or six megabytes in less than a thousand lines of JavaScript, HTML, and CSS because they weren't, they were adding, like they had Bootstrap, they had React, they had something called Metro, which was internal, they had Mustache, they had all of these things for, for form. Um, I used to work at Williams-Sonoma and I was no longer needed when they changed to Tailwind because they don't need CSS anymore. And I'm like, you don't need a CSS expert. You're, you're using Tailwind to write CSS. You still need to understand CSS. But if you put, so with the Shadow DOM that we talked about earlier, you can basically style your web component and that CSS is encapsulated. It's into that tiny component. And so you can always, you know exactly what style that is. You don't need to put Tailwind. You just need to put four lines of CSS inside um, your component. And you can do that with a style element. I also see tons of people writing the styles with JavaScript. Why? Like, it's shorter to just write the CSS and you write a selector and it matches. And then if someone changes the element, you just put a comma button or, you know, a comma input type equals submit, whatever. You just add a selector, but the selectors can select anything on the page with including parents and the sibling four times over that has the same parent or that doesn't have the same parent. Um, I teach people how to write an American flag. I'm like, here's a table. It has like 40 cells or something like that and 13 rows. And if you start, I teach it by starting at the end. I'm going to style it into an American flag by starting at the end. So just counting every odd row starting from the end, make it red. Then every, every cell starting from the fifth row from the bottom and the seventh row from the right, make that blue. And then every cell in that area, put a star in it. Every odd one, move it 50% to the right. And there you have an American flag with 48 stars, but who's counting? Um, But the thing is like, selectors can actually say start from the end or start from the beginning. Do every odd, do every fifth, do every fifth, except for every, you know, if it's divisible by 15. Um, You can do anything with the selector. Just use CSS for what it's known for, which is the cascade. When you're using Tailwind, nothing is cascading. You're basically having to define everything over and over and over and over again. And since most of us learned how to write code by viewing source, you can't view the source of your of tailwind it's basically it's written by people who it's used mostly by people who haven't taken the time to learn css and they say i don't want to learn css because it's so easy like it's not a real programming language and the the fact is it's actually not that difficult if you try but you have to put the effort in 
and a lot of people aren't putting the effort in because, you know, it's, you know, not to get political, but it's seen as a feminine domain versus JavaScript is seen as a masculine domain. Um, and so it's disrespected. And yeah, I went there. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> Data type. <laughs> Augustus, maybe a good segue is uh, what what's missing for you in CSS? Ooh, yes. So for me, I, I think Cascade Layers solves this problem, but this is a, this is a great place to check. Um, it, it's nothing like specific about CSS, but you know, especially like when you work in like really large code bases, and every team has their own. We'll, we'll just be honest. Even though CSS is a language, everybody has their own way of writing their own CSS, and. I feel like as time has gone on, you know, a lot of companies build their own design systems. They try to align themselves and they have, they ship all these components with predefined styles. Um, but especially working in a massive code base, like, and there's just like all these ways that steps can kind of conflict. And I'm, I'm really excited to see like how design systems kind of change with cascade layers and stuff like that. Um, that that was definitely a problem that's like, you know, I, I I don't have it as much where I work now, but it's definitely been something that I've run into before. I, I'd be I'd love to hear it still in Eric or anyone's thoughts. I think variables have also helped with that a lot. So if you look at these different code bases that used to exist, um, like Facebook famously had what fifty four blues. I worked at uh, SurveyMonkey. I know it has a different name now. I don't remember what the name is. But when I started working there, they had like 20 plus greens. And so the designer would always give me a new green. And so we created a pattern library. So it wasn't custom elements. It was just a pattern library. It was like, and every green had a name and, or every color had a name. And I'm like, what? So every time he gave me a color, I'm like, what is the name? So let's have the purpose of this color. So by doing custom variables, they can just say, this is our business blue. And then you define business blue once, you define business blue at being 90% opaque or you know, adding 20% gray. So you have two shades of it, but it's when you change the blue, the whole site changes. So if you're having like theming, you can go from pink to blue and so on. So I think um, what you were talking about is actually really helped by custom variables. That, that's super true. Yeah, actually, when you're talking about CSS variables, I was thinking about theming, dark theming and light themes when especially like, I don't know even what caused it, like dark themes just like blew up in popularity or something like that. Like, does anyone know the origin of this? Like, like all of a sudden everyone's doing dark themes. I was like, sounds good to me. <laughs> I think dark themes could have been one a preference and also an accessibility issue. So... Mm. They are sometimes, yeah. that's true. Yeah. Yes, variable, yes, CSS variables, custom properties, technically, um, <laughs> uh, help with that sort of thing. Um, and cascade layers will also help, like, keep things straight, but they will only help because what you're really describing are organizational problems. They're human problems. They're not technical problems, right? And CSS... Variables, cascade layers, you know, whatever else, nesting, right? Those can be useful tools in the same way that a pattern 
library or a design system is a useful tool, but those are really just to help every like to help the organization, everyone in the organization get on the same page. And that's, I mean, that's something that CSS or JavaScript or any programming language is never actually going to fix. It can only help you. And that's, you know, understanding how to use those tools in order to make those organizational problems easier to solve is really important. And that's why understanding where custom properties fit in to the like CSS, like technically how they work and how cascade layers operate will be important, but they'll, they'll really only be useful in those scenarios. And if the, you know, they're used to create cascade layers that actually make sense organizationally. Right. Right. So if you're going to like have all of your colors in one layer, because you want to be able to override them with the default, at the default style layer at any point, like that's one way to go about it might be the right way for some situations. And in other situations, it might be a complete disaster, right? So that is, that is the one thing that worry it doesn't worry me just every now and again, I get sort of a little tickle in the back of my head. Like, yeah, th- these are cool tools, but sometimes I feel like people think, Oh, with that added to CSS, my organizational problems will go away. It's like, no, you're still going to have to talk to people. That's still <laughs> a real important skill. It, it turns out that the quote unquote soft skills are not soft. They're actually some of the hardest skills and they're yes. not soft skills. They're core skills. Cheers. I actually went to a talk at an event apart where they were talking about component libraries. Um, and I can't remember the, the, who the speaker was, what his name was. But um, what he said that was very interesting is if you're going to build a component library and you want to convince the powers that be, the teams to use your component library, do not start with a button. Because the button, there's like 400 different renditions of the button. You have you know, the three hover states, the active state, whether it's in the header, whether it's small, whether it's large, whether it's main call to action, the second call to action. Do something that a team actually needs, such as a map. So that's reusable. No one wants to design it a second time. It has functionality and it's really helpful. Um, so it's basically, the reason I bring this up now is because it, 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 my master's degree is in health and social behavior. And one of the things that's really helpful in web development is social behavior. So it's basically figuring out a way that you can communicate with people in a way that they'll actually um, absorb what you're trying to say and be on your team. So if you're doing a button, you're going to have so many different opinions and so many people are going to be passionate about it. But if you're doing, say, a map, um, you're going to be like, yay, it works. Thank you for doing it for me. We're going to implement this right away. What else do you have for me? So with all things, it's figuring out a way to communicate with people, like saying don't use important to someone who doesn't know CSS that well and uses it as a crutch. That's not going to get through to them. I know that from experience. I haven't figured out how to get through to them. Um, I used to bake cookies for people, but now I just don't see people in real life. and. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I also went gluten free. I mean, maybe maybe that's something in the future. Just remove important. We don't want it anymore. And that's you know that could be it. <laughs> that's probably a good uh, segue into us diving into picks. Uh, in each episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast, we like to choose picks of things that. Maybe related to the topic, may not be, but just things that we want to share with all of you listening. Cole, you want to start it off? Sure. I have two picks today, and it follows one of my earlier picks. If you loved Crocs, you're going to love dog Crocs. They're called no, Wagwellies. No. And, you know, the thing is, Ryan sent these to me, and I have to get them for my dog. Um I haven't ordered them yet because you have to like size your dog's feet or whatever, but they're just like uh, the regular Crocs, but for your dog. And that's the the thing is like open toed shoes or semi open toed shoes for dogs is actually super important, but we're not going to get into that. Uh, In my second pick, because I have a lot of adult money, uh, I bought a ginormous inflatable green dinosaur yard summer sprinkler because I got a pool for my uh, place this summer. And, uh, you know, it's just not complete without a giant dinosaur leaning and spraying water all over. And those are my two picks. Right on. Stacy. what do you have for us? I've got three picks. My first two picks are Eric and Estelle, humans. I'm there. They are my picks. We, I think you both have talked about, you know, being in this industry for a very long time. And, and I have as well. This is like year 23 for me, but professionally. But before that, I was like making web pages in the late 90s. And I've learned immense amounts of things from you both. The breadth of knowledge and the depth of knowledge that you have shared with the community through your books and your talks and being constant advocates for all sorts of uh, great things. Um, buy their books, read them. Um, don't use them for uh, standing on stairs and changing light bulbs. Read them. <laughs> <laughs> There's, they're a wealth of knowledge. Um, so what an honor to be able to talk to you in this podcast and say thank you in sort of person. We're Zoom or, you know, over a virtual uh, way, but, but thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, and I said I had three picks. So the th- the third pick is just some it's just, just, just some music, uh, as as per usual. Um, it's just a, a Max Cooper song just released um, called "Vertebrae Forgotten Places." Um, it's a very big departure from his normal sound, kind of drum and bassy, going back to some of I think maybe his roots. Um, it's a good song to uh, write some code to. Awesome, Augustus. What do you have? Hello, I have only one pick today, but that's okay because it's a great pick. Um, <laughs> uh, I, my pick is, uh, this new Chromium based browser called arc. Um, it's, as I said, Chromium based, um, you know, and okay, I'll be honest. I'm not the type to person who likes to add more browsers to the wheel of things we have to now test for or whatever, but I think it's really cool. Cause this browser is really trying to play around with different ways of organizing, like how tabs where they render, it has a more Slack kind of feel where everything's on the side nav. And it comes with a lot of ways to configure the web page. I think it just does some like injecting CSS and it makes it very user-friendly for the user to just easily do that. Um, I just thought it was a really cool take on what, you know, internet browsing, how it could look or how it could change um, in the future, so. Right on. 
Eric, what do you have for us? Uh, okay, I'm going to go with three things. The first is um, for anyone who's uh, looking for a web performance job, perfwork.com recently launched. Uh, and that has basically, it's a web performance job board that has uh, Asana and uh, Meyer. Uh, for those who know what Meyer is, MathWorks, uh, Walmart have posted on there, a bunch of other people as well. So that's my first pick. Uh, my second pick is that uh, I just found out about this today. Um, Matt Marquis's uh, JavaScript for Web Designers is now available for free as a complete book from A Book Apart. It's at javascriptforwebdesigners.abookapart.com, excuse me, uh, JavaScript for web designers, there's, we're just separated by hyphens, but, uh, I'll get the link into the show notes, but yeah, it's the entire book is available online for free. You can buy a copy if you want to put it on your shelf, but that's there. And it's, uh, it's a, it's a good book. Um, and then the third one is actually going to lead into uh, Estelle because, um, my third pick is Estelle's cycle tracker PWA. And I'm going to let her explain it. Uh, okay, so we had to do a tutorial for uh, how to build progressive web apps. And so we decided to do a useful app, and it is a menstrual cycle tracker. So if you want to learn how to do progressive web apps, you can create um, a web app that has complete privacy and security since you actually write the code. And then you can run it on any device that you have and then delete the code base, and you still have a website that works as an application. Uh, so... One of the things I've been doing um, at Open Web Docs is uh, what I call micro-benevolences instead of um, microaggressions. Um, and uh, the cycle tracker was one of them, and making culturally diverse names and code examples was another. Um, so before I say my picks, I just wanted to point out two things. If I Google search, I Google search, I Bing searched in in Edge for the Arc browser, and there was a huge banner that says, my, promoted by Microsoft, there's no need to download a new web browser. And I've never seen like larger font on an ad. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Incredible. That's the best. And then for the Wagware, we actually bought for my dog's 20th birthday last year, we bought her shoes because the pads get thinner when you get older. It did not work. She did not want to wear them, but it was the cutest video ever. So um, you can actually buy dog shoes for $5 for a set of four. And these are 50. So I'm not, and she didn't wear those. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to splurge on, on Crocs, but they're adorable. Um, my pick is gluten-free Oreo cookies. So if you like Oreo cookies, the gluten-free cookies are to die for. And if you don't like Oreo cookies, try, well, don't try the gluten-free ones because you'll actually start liking Oreo cookies and then eat the whole bag when you have the munchies but it's like 10 times better than regular Oreos. And no one knows this, um, but maybe if enough people find out, they'll have gluten-free Oreo cookie ice cream, which is also fantastic. I, I make my own ice cream and it's a fantastic. Estelle, I have had the cookies and I was surprised. Like I felt like maybe I need to almost taste test them beside each other. But when I ate it, I don't think I would have been able to tell you that it was gluten-free. Like I was like, wow, this is just, a normal Oreo? like No, it, it tastes better. It actually tastes like, Okay, yeah. I need to go back and try these yeah. again. So, all right. Like Oreo cookies don't have flavor. Gluten-free Oreo cookies taste like chocolate cookies. 
Man, now I need to go back and try this. All right, that's that's on my list now. All right, I only have one pick for this episode. It's actually going to help Cole blow up his dinosaur that he purchased. I've been finding myself, I mean, I have kids, small kids. You're you're always blowing up various things. And so I found a uh, air inflator. I've had other ones, but this uh, DeWalt makes one. Um, it's you know, a little more expensive than, than some of their other ones that I've tried. But what I like about it is it is fast. It, it blows up things very fast. And so, you know, when your kids are like, hey, we need this inflated, you can do that very fast. If it's that inflatable pool or giant dinosaur, or in my case, we have a giant unicorn and it is a great purchase so far. So Stell and Eric, thank you so much for joining us on the Data episode. Type. It was a pleasure data type as always cheers cheers thanks it was great being here thank you for having us stacy worded it perfectly like we are big fans of yours and you know it's it's been awesome to have you on and just be thank, thankful for all the amazing content that you continually put out there um so we appreciate that where can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more other than obviously buying your books and looking up the tons of content online eric where can people get in touch with you uh, my website, MeyerWeb.com, so M-E-Y-E-R-W-E-B.com. Um, and then at the in the footer of pages on that site, there's what I call my Identity Archipelago that has links to Mastodon and GitHub and Flickr, although I haven't posted there in like six years, um, but stuff like that. So really, you can find me as MeyerWeb almost anywhere that I actually am, um, but the the... MeyerWeb.com is the, the really the place to go. Estelle, where can people get in touch with I you? used to blog at standardista.com, and I used to do a lot of browser compatibility data. And now, since Can I Use is so much better, my website now says future home of Estelle Weil. So that's not the best place. Um, so my name is Estelle, and you can find me online by looking up Estelle and then CSS or anything else web-related. Uh, but estelle.github.io or... Uh, github.com slash Estelle has my contact information. Um, so all of my presentations are estelle.github.io and all of my contact information is at github.com slash Estelle um, or, or through Open Web Docs, which is openwebdocs.org. Right on. Well, and thank you all for listening to our episode. You can really listen to us on whatever you like to listen to podcasts on. Make sure to subscribe. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at FrontendHH. I guess, should I be saying X? I don't think I can do that. You should so be it's, saying it's Mastodon. Uh, yeah, yeah. So anything other. <laughs> that's sky. a good point. And Blue Sky, all the things. Um, but yes, FrontendHH. You can follow us there. Find us at FrontendHappyHour.com. Any last words? That sounded ominous. Data type. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.